Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is Mary Theotokos, Mary, the mother of God, Mary, the bearer of God, the Virgin Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, she who has accrued many titles unto herself. Dad, we are doing this in a sequence with some other episodes. We we often have rather loose sequences of episodes, and this one builds off particularly from before Auschwitz and also some larger Christological topics. So uh, what in particular interested you about this? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, building off of before Auschwitz, uh, a previous episode, um, we saw there... Um, how in the churches descended from the Reformation, anti-Marian piety has kind of become a juggernaut. (laughs) And for for outrageous example with Walter Grundman, who I talked about in that episode, uh, he he was responsible uh, uh, for picking up the ancient smear that Jesus was the bastard child of a Roman centurion and therefore a racial Gentile Galilean, not a Jew at all. And in fact, as a result, he grew up to be a proto-Nazi Jew fighter with Hitler coming on the scene thousands of years later to finish off the job that the brown shirt Aryan Jesus had begun. (laughs) And that is just, of course, so outrageous, but it by exaggeration, it illustrates what are the, what are some of the terrible problems hermeneutically with modernizing Jesus and the quest for the so-called historical Jesus, which end up almost invariably in modernizing Jesus. So we want to really talk today about Mary's role in a creedal uh, uh, doctrinal or creedal theology. It's an article of faith born of the Virgin Mary. Now, how does this serve as an ancillary to the identification of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? That That's, that's for us the angle that we want to take here, I think. Right. And because of that fact that it, also she is the only woman mentioned in the creed, so significant so far as that goes, but also that it is the reason why she, she gets to that uh, high honor is because there is, um, as uh, secondary characters of the New Testament go, she's quite significant. There's a lot of, of resources there. And I think we're going to also try to flesh her out a bit more biblically and give a, a rounder and more complex picture of this person who is a person as well as um, from uh, for many, many centuries now, a guarantor of the Christological doctrine that the church holds to. Absolutely. And here, I think we have to just emphasize the, po- the, the epistemic point that Christian doctrinal knowledge is pragmatic in nature. It's on the earth, it's in time and space, task of identifying Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and distinguishing him from imposters and fraud. And in the creed, of course, that is indicated by these certain Trinitarian relationships. He's the son of the Almighty Father, creator of heaven and earth, and he's the one who from the beginning of his human existence was initiated, called, sustained through trial and testing, and finally vindicated on Easter morn by the Holy Spirit of the same God of Israel through his resurrection from the dead. 
So that's the fundamental cognitive point. How does Mary uh, Theotokos serve to identify Jesus Christ in this way? And here there's the flip side to this. As an ancillary article of faith, the article about Mary cannot be allowed to become detached from this narrative creedal framework uh, or to take on a life of its own uh, or a purpose other than thusly indicated. And that's basically the fundamental Reformation objection to the evolution of the modern Marian dogmas of her Immaculate Conception and Bodily Assumption, uh, according to the Roman Catholic Church. Um, So I think that kind of sets the stage. What do you think? Yeah, I think actually, I mean, this would be a a good topic for the future, too, is um, how far can inference go in biblical and creedal theology? Um, So you just said there that uh, as heirs of the Reformation, we have objections to the extrapolations in these two Marian dogmas that are, in our judgment, unhinged, unrooted in in scripture or any historical affirmation. Actually, my, my problem more than anything else is that without any historical anchoring whatsoever. It undercuts the very historical claims of the Christian faith. But uh, to take it in another direction, um, I've just been uh, listening in on a debate about what is the significance of Mary qua woman for women and perhaps also for men. And um, I I think that's an interesting topic. We're not actually going to deal with it here, but it is an interesting question. Is the fact that Mary is a woman, well, it it means something. Thing, obviously, because she could not be a, a mother who bears a son unless she was a woman. But then to what extent is that uh, in itself good news? Is that something that needs to be proclaimed? And uh, how, how much is your inference from the fact of God uh, not being ashamed to take his flesh from a woman and dwell and be born of a woman, something that you then use to address, you know, challenges of the relationship between the sexes today? I think that's an interesting question, both methodologically and in content, but it's not going to be our topic here. Well, yeah, but just one fast comment on that. We, I just can't resist making this comment, Sarah. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I can't resist. Uh, the article on the birth of the Son of God from the Virgin Mary speaks against the mistaken biology and the attendant male chauvinism, that the man is the generator and the female merely the passive nest for incubation in human procreation. The doctrine says that Jesus Christ takes his entire humanity from the woman Mary, who, uh, canonically speaking, as the church father Irenaeus first argued, uh, undoes the disobedience of Eve by her own faith and obedience. So I think that's just uh, very fraught. I mean, you have Adam, the prototypical sinner, and Eve, his partner in crime. But now you have the new Adam, Jesus Christ, and uh, the mother, uh, his mother, the mother of us all in faith, Mary. I... 
I know what you are saying, and I agree with it, but I, the, the reason why we're not going to get to this here, because this is huge, is there are lots of different ways to gloss that fact, which could be that childbearing and submission are the most important female virtues, right? You could you could read that out of this Marian affirmation, and that's, that is where the whole particularly contemporary argument lies. So, yes, maybe yeah, for another time. I think time. that... That, that's true. That's the contemporary argument, but that's totally anachronistic when looking at the biblical and doctrinal material here, I would say. Um, we would say that. Yes, that is true. <laughs> I'm not arguing with you on that, that particular point. Okay. All right. So why don't you, why don't you take us through a, a nice segue to exactly what the New Testament tells us about Mary? Okay, so uh, obviously she appears most of all in the gospel. So we're going to start with Mark on the assumption that Mark is the the first to be written down. And uh, there is no birth narrative in Mark, uh, as you probably know by now. Um, but Mary is identified by name in chapter 6. The, uh, the skeptics, uh, Jesus' miracles in Nazareth, say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Josie's and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. Uh, notably, no mention of Jesus' father in this particular um, recounting. Uh, Jesus is the carpenter, not the son of the carpenter here. And then later on, there is a issue where Jesus is preaching and his mother and brothers come to collect him because they think he's possibly out of his mind and bringing shame on the family and needs maybe needs to be brought to heal. And Jesus famously looks around and says, who is my mother? The one who hears the word in God and of God and does it is my, my mother and brothers and sisters and so forth. The um, Matthew and Luke both uh, keep the story and soften it just a bit, <laughs> but it's pretty harsh sounding here. Uh, then we have Matthew. He has a narrative of the virgin birth, but it is told primarily from the perspective of Joseph. He is, uh, although Mary is definitely present and she is named, um, he, Joseph is the real cent central protagonist of Matthew's account. However, very interestingly, as we mentioned in our recent Matthew episodes, the genealogy of Jesus is counted through Matthew. I'm sorry. The genealogy of Jesus is counted through Joseph, but then it very makes it very clear that Jesus is the adopted son of Joseph, not the biological son of Joseph. And then it builds on with uh, Joseph taking the family down, and including Mary, down to Egypt after the visit of the Magi and then returning to Nazareth. Luke's version, obviously, is by far the most famous. That's the one that we hear most often. Mary does a lot of talking. She is visited by the angel who announces things to her. She is allowed to ask questions in a way that Zachariah is punished for, but Mary is affirmed for. She says her famous fiat, let it be done to me, according to God's will. And then she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and she sings her Magnificat. Um, and Elizabeth makes a very important affirmation. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth, in a way, gives the first Theotokos confession. Uh, twice we hear in Luke how Mary treasures up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We also have the story of the uh, how she obeys the ritual law by going 
to have Jesus um, circumcised and then to the temple for their purification. This is Luke's strong affirmation of Mary being within the um, Torah law and stipulations for purification. It's not, it is not an anti-Judaic bid on Luke's part at all, but rather really, really, really rooting Jesus' early days in the best of the Judaism of the time. Uh, But Simeon warns Mary at the temple visit, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And uh, that has given rise to much uh, piety and beautiful iconography about Mary as the mother of sorrows. Uh, Most famously, I think, Michelangelo's Pieta, where uh, Mary is holding the dead body of her son. I remember we had a photo of that in our house when I was growing up. Yeah. Um, and then the, the story where the boy Jesus goes to the temple and Mary says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Um, and Jesus is bewildered, like, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? A little distancing there from <laughs> Joseph. Um, and then again after that, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So um, she's really, really key to Luke's story, um, even even beyond Matthew's. Um, then in John, very interestingly, Mary is never named by name. Uh, Joseph is, but she is not. Uh, the mother of Jesus is identified. There's, of course, again, no birth narrative. Um, she comes into her own at the wedding at Cana, where she tells the crowd, do whatever he tells you, even though he said, woman, my time has not yet come. Uh, everyone thinks that's kind of rude of Jesus. Um, and then uh, we'll come back to this later. But then at the end of the story, she reappears at the foot of the cross and Jesus mutually bequeaths his beloved disciple to Mary and Mary to the beloved disciple as mother and son. And then beyond the Gospels, we only have two real mentions of her um, at the beginning of Acts. Uh, Luke again reports, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So they are part of the prayer community after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And it is often inferred, therefore, that she was present at the Pentecost. Uh, She's not specified as being at Pentecost itself, but it is a reasonable inference. And you can see some really wonderful, especially Eastern Orthodox icons of Mary at the Pentecost. And she's often centered with the the 12, the, the renewed 12 with uh, Matthias taking the place of Judas, um, uh, six on each side of her and the f- tongues of, of uh, fire on their heads. And then after that, Paul is the only one to mention her explicitly. And it's not very explicit in Galatians 4, 4, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And we know that Paul it doesn't spend a whole lot of time with what we would call incarnational theology. He's much more focused on the death and resurrection, but this is the one place where he gives a little space to how how the Son of God came into the world and specifies that she is born of a woman that he was born of a woman. And then uh, one can infer that Revelation 12 about the woman with the crown of stars who gives birth to the son that the dragon goes after is mythologically alluding to Mary. But obviously we are in the realm there of apocalyptic vision, not historical description. Yeah, very good, Sarah. That's a good overview. So like, what does it all mean? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, uh, I think one thing we can, uh, probably infer is just that she's a real person who was remembered by the early church and remembered by name and remembered as having a a distinct 
personhood, personality, you might say. There are specific um, stories and instances attributed to her. So the fact that Jesus really did come from a lineage, from a family, from a mother, um, that is clearly never... um, a matter of shame or doubt for early affirmations of who and what Jesus is. They do not need him to burst onto the scene fully formed. So like even Mark that has no birth narrative acknowledges, you know, later on, like, well, yeah, he had a mom and brothers and sisters. So um, the, the, her as um, a real historical person with humanity and distinctiveness as a person and not just as like the, you know, the archetype mother, but a, a <laughs> unique human female. I think that's at least one one thing we can draw out of this assortment of stories. Yes, but isn't that just, I think that you're right about that, but isn't what you give with the right hand now taken away with the left hand when she says she's a virgin mother? <laughs> Well, Dad, uh, some time ago, I think last year in our Pair of Luke podcasts, I just asked you baldly, do you believe in the virgin birth? Because I know that you have struggled a lot with this doctrine. And let's say not in the way people usually struggle with it as a as mainly a scientific problem, but as a theological problem. And you said, you told me before we got to recording that you've had a kind of breakthrough on this point. So I'm, I'm glad you deferred it then. But but tell us, Dad, your, your new and improved understanding understanding of the virgin birth. I just want to point out before I do that this is how theology works. You get bushwhacked and (laughs) then you go licking your wounds and saying, I have to have a better answer than the one I gave. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm proud to have been the bushwhacker. (laughs) Okay. So here's my, my hypothesis. Historically, what the sign born of the Virgin Mary, signifies or refers to is the Jewishness of Jesus. Just as you rehearsed for us in Paul's language, born of a woman, born under the law. As Luke testifies, a true chaste Israelite and model of Israel's obedience of faith, over against the sad history of Israel's covenant infidelity represented in Luke by Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. And in Matthew, likewise, uh, Mary is the one through whom the Lord will fulfill once and for all all his immutable will to redeem Israel and through Israel to save the whole human being, body and soul, as Gregory Nazianzus in time made clear, what is not assumed is not healed. Uh, These are the things doctrinally signified and which are binding on the conscience of those who would confess Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as, so Luther put it, my Lord. Now, let me just make one more quick point about that before you respond to what I've said. Namely, that the deep objection to the modern Marian dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church are not against these as pious opinions. we are free to have, hold to such edifying legends as we, if we wish, and we can find them helpful to faith, I suppose. The real problem is the authoritarianism, that these dogmas were promulgated without consultation with the universal church and made binding on conscience on pain of salvation. Now, quite by contrast is baptism and 
the rite of confirmation or adult affirmation of baptism, by which one freely and voluntarily pledges oneself to the faith of the creed. And here you have a free and voluntary uh, profession of the one who was born from the Virgin Mary, with all the entailments of that uh, about the Jewishness of Jesus that I just laid out. Hmm. Yeah, many Orthodox hold to the pious opinions about uh, Jesus' um, assumption, and uh, I don't think they're so much into the Immaculate Conception, but they are not dogmatic, and they are not allowed to be dogmatic. There would be an objection from the Eastern Church there, too. So, uh, well, well, good. I, I think, actually, I, I would agree that you're on the, the right track there about what the, the virgin birth is supposed to theologically signify. And I would say again, Dad, I've really learned this in doing Bible study in, con- in a congregation again, that we are so... We're so likely to interpret things in, in, in our you know modern culture as either uh, scientific truths or pure fabulations, you know, like uh, in, inspiring little stories that have no anchoring in reality. And so charting out a place for theological truth that does not line up with either of those, but, you know, neither detached from reality nor beholden to narrow conceptions of reality is, uh, is, is definitely one of our tasks for today. So I think the first thing I would want to say about the virgin birth is that um, clearly in um, In human psychology, and let's say especially in jealous male human psychology, the virgin is a very powerful archetype. (laughs) It means a lot um, to a certain kind of male myth-making. And I think it's very easy to project that onto Mary and miss the theological point of her virginity. what uh, I, I think you you said to the effect of how significant, especially in Old Testament prophetic literature, is this motif of unfaithful Israel, uh, both unfaithful um, uh, unmarried woman as well as unfaithful wife who goes whoring after the gods. You know, some, some pretty shocking language in Ezekiel and elsewhere about that. And so one of the significances is that the, the sexual language is used symbolically for a lack of uh, you know, religious, spiritual, whole life fidelity to the Lord God. So I think that's the first thing to say is that Mary's virginity is primarily of a theological significance, not of um, jealous male psychology significance. Yeah, and I would even add to that, Sarah, it's not even particularly interesting as a biological fact. Uh, the, the, the point here is that Mary uh, is not sinless, and we don't need a virgin birth in order to exempt Mary from the transmission of original sin, which is, I fear, some of the thinking behind the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. What, what Mary's virginity represents theologically is that the Lord has found in her a true and faithful Israelite, and therefore she is the chosen one, the one chosen by grace to bear fruit, the fruit of her womb in the messianic human being, uh, her son Jesus. I think, so chastity in the sense of um, fidelity um, and, and, and exclusive commitment, uh, rather than virginity in the sense of some kind of biological miracle is what's, what's especially important here. 
Right. And I, I actually think it's it's very important that Mary is not exempt from sin, um, partly because that is comes out of an STD model of original sin, which is... Um, <laughs> Yeah, doesn't doesn't work. So you don't need Mary to be sinless um, in order for that to work. I think it is more theologically and spiritually powerful if Mary is faithful yet a sinner like all humans are sinners. That that to me is um, more significant and effective. But I also think that um, one of the things we want to say about her virginity is also that it is not anti-sexuality, which is another way it has been deployed, especially um, with the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is not dogmatic for Catholics, but is generally affirmed. And um, Luther seems to have thought it, and I know there are some Lutherans who are really big on Mary's perpetual virginity. I think that is completely unsustained by much in the biblical text. (laughs) There's no reason to think that Jesus' brothers and sisters are not actually his brothers and sisters. Um, But again, I think the the force of it is that she is is the, the faithful, chaste virgin who responds in fidelity to God's call for her firstborn son. And there's no reason why after that she should not be a wife to her husband, Joseph, and mother of many more children. To, to me, that, again, is, is fixating on the wrong aspect of her virginity, that she has to be a perpetual virgin. Uh, and I think the, the, the significance, again, here is that she goes from being um, a faithful, uh, chaste virgin for the Lord to being a faithful wife and mother. And that's really the significance of Luke's reporting of how she takes Jesus for circumcision. And then she goes to the temple to be purified. And they went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That's how Jesus ended up at the temple when they didn't know he was still there, which means that Mary, yeah. we, I, I think we can infer here again, this is an inference that Mary was a good mother to her son in training him up in how to be a faithful son of Israel. So she also plays a role informing his faith and piety like parents always do. And often in human culture, mothers are more significant than fathers in shaping the piety of their children. So I think this whole, as you say, keeping the affirmation of the virgin birth rooted in Mary as the faithful Israelite is so much more illuminating than having virginity fixated on as a separate commentary on sexuality or jealousy or whatever. That that misses the point of what it's about. And let me add one thought to that excellent uh, argument, Sarah, that you just made, how a f- uh, uh, such a focus on uh, virginity, which can lead in these deleterious directions that you've outlined, how it eclipses the constituent role of the Holy Spirit in creating the humanity of the new Adam from, uh, let us say, the new Eve. Uh I think the article is born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? It's not just the Virgin Mary, it's the Holy Spirit who's really the the divine agent who's active here. And what, what this really cashes out in is the insight that not only do sinfully alienated human beings not know who and what true deity is, capable of the humility of the uh, Mary's womb and passage through her birth canal. They also don't know what is true humanity. Truly to be human is to be born of the Holy Spirit. And that is the significance in part of the nativity stories. And I think it's also how we should talk about the so-called sinlessness of Christ, not by engineering a miraculous bypass on original sin, 
you know, but rather by seeing that this human being from his conception is the special saving work of God, the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, you can see there then in the the doctrine of the two natures and one person of Christ, we have we have let's say the the first article and the third article knit together. Which to be born for everybody is to be born of a mother. Like there is no human being that is not born of a mother, a human mother. So that's first article, affirmation of what God has created and the way he has set up his creatures to propagate themselves. Uh, and then linking it to the third article, which is also to be truly human, is to be reborn of the Holy Spirit or to be, by the power of the Spirit, connected to God as one is supposed to be connected. And of course, you know, the first and third articles are threaded through the second article, which is this this person who who is supremely that reality. You know, there's a line of theological argument. This is just a little digression, but I think it's interesting and important that uh, in the Genesis story of the creation of, of, of Adam and Eve and, and God breathed into the man and he became a living being, this uh, Ruach Yahweh, this, this breath of God, is what animates and gives life to the, hum- the first human being. And this can be read then that essential to being human being human, is to be born of the Holy Spirit. Luther actually takes it this way in the Genesis commentary. That's why he argues that when Adam fell into sin, he didn't simply lose some uh, uh, extra theological virtues. His very humanity was damaged by the departure of the Holy Spirit from him. He was no longer led directly by the Holy Spirit. So naturally, the new Adam would be the one in whom uh, the Holy Spirit is the agent from his conception and accompanying him and leading him and developing his humanity throughout his entire earthly sojourn. Mm. Well, great. And while we're on Luther, we should mention that for Luther, Genesis 3.16 about the uh, the woman shall give birth to a, a son that will crush the snake under his heel um, and the, the snake will, will bite his heel. Uh, Luther says that is the first assertion of, of gospel promise, the first, the first prophecy of the Christ in the entire Bible that was extremely important to him. And uh, for those of you who like a little, a little light numerology, it's pretty fun that it's 3.16, like John 3.16, Genesis 3.16. 16. Um, <laughs> and I should just say, we're, we're going to circle back to the church fathers. But again, since we're mentioning Luther, this is actually part of binding Lutheran doctrine as well. I just want to say that um, in addition to Luther's early on that Jesus Christ was born a Jew, um, which I've heard someone describe as the most positive word any Christian spoke about Jews in a thousand years. So again, a, a one of those um, um, mind-twisting realities that this is where Luther started. It is not where he ended up. But um, Luther was actually accused of of um, doubting the virgin birth because he asserted that Mary was a Jew. So that's how far alienated the medieval church had gotten from the Jewish roots of Mary, that they thought affirming Mary's Jewishness was a denial, inherently a denial of the virgin birth. And um, he also gave a, wrote a beautiful devotional commentary on the Magnificat. And then in the Book of Concord, which is 
binding, uh, especially on uh, ordained Lutheran pastors. She is called the Blessed Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Pure Holy Virgin Mary, and the Mother of God. And the formula of Concord asserts that Mary's central Christological importance, it is intolerable to deny that Jesus received his body and blood from her. And it must be confessed that the personal union of the two natures is unique to the Son of Mary. Interestingly, the Son of Mary is emphasized there. I remember, Dad, one time I was teaching my uh, Luther course in Wittenberg, and I think it was a Tanzanian woman pastor heard me refer to Mary as the mother of God, and she took great umbrage at this. And she said, what? She can't be the mother of God. And, you know, clearly was thinking uh, an understandable mistake if you're not familiar with the terminology that Mary pre-existed God in some way. But I said, well, it's it's what we teach and believe. It's in your book. You took a vow to this. <laughs> so so you need to revisit it. But but it struck me, like you said, how anti-Marian piety can take on a life of its own, divorced even from the, the Lutheran sources that affirm it. You know, that's, that's why I, I think the Greek term theotokos is more helpful than the Latin um, mother of God uh, language, because mother of God uh, has the natural uh, implication that your Tanzanian pastor took offense to, that somehow Mary and her humanity generated God out of nothing <laughs> or, you know, or, or out of some previous existing human materials. And of course, that's not what's meant at all, as I think you'll shortly point out with, from Cyril of, of Alexandria. Um, rather, theotokos, the, the word theos is, of course, God, but tokos is a word that means something like the one who bears or the one who, who uh, uh, is born from, something along those lines. So um, the, as, as the doctrine asserts, the conception is the sovereign election and work of God the Holy Spirit. And Mary is uh, quite precisely the chosen vessel of this divine sovereign work through her not from her um, uh, in terms of its initiation. Right. But definitely from her in terms of Jesus' humanity. So this was actually a yes. really important point that the church fathers are pretty universal on, which is that Jesus in his humanity, took all of his human flesh from his mother Mary, uh, which um, let's just say right up, we are not going to solve the scientific problem of DNA here. Okay, folks, just set it aside. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no way to do this. Um, and uh, people back then knew as well as we do now that you need uh, uh, you, you need a, a male involved for a baby to come into existence. So even though they did not know the specific, you know, genetic transmission of DNA, they did understand that you cannot have a new life come into existence without a male getting involved. So they understood the problem just as well as we did, even if they didn't uh, have all the details quite right. Just like they knew as a general rule, people don't rise from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> they knew that people never rise from the dead. It just doesn't happen, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, good points. So um, all the church fathers uh, agreed that Jesus derives his full humanity from Mary, from not any other human source, which is significant in its own right that, you know, the the male, the man Jesus, 
um, becomes fully human out of his mother alone. Which means, though, then when you reverse the order, then that Mary is significant Christologically. You actually cannot have a correct doctrine of Christ without Mary, his mother, um, as as we've said before, as the guarantor of his his full humanity. And so this really came out then. So if you uh, think back to your uh, conciliar knowledge um, in the the uh, fourth century with Nicaea and Constantinople, you are working the the church is working its way towards the Trinitarian doctrine, which, I mean, God the Father is not hard to award full God status. They're struggling towards the full divinity of the Son. They get there. They are pretty sure that the Spirit is um, just as much, though uh, fairly under-commented on in Nicaea, more developed at Constantinople. But then basically what happens is once they get to the, you know, the working doctrine of the Trinity, then they have all sorts of problems about who, what, what does it mean to say that Jesus, the Christ, is fully divine and yet fully human? How on earth does that work? And so you have the whole range of things. So we know that Arius can't be right because he's not affirming the full divinity of Christ. But what does it mean to actually be human if you are divine too? And so you have someone like Apollinaris who uh, essentially deletes the human soul or, you know, whatever that placeholder concept is supposed to mean and puts in its place the Holy Spirit or the divine son or something like that. There's some kind of um, undercutting of the humanity of Jesus mind, consciousness, soul, again, these variety of words we use. Um, and that is that is problematic. Or then you have a Nestorian solution. Nestorius basically lobotomizes Jesus so that, you know, like the, the human thing and the divine thing do their own thing, but they never touch each other and um, they, they operate independently. So you get the stronger ideas of like the divine stuff does the miracles, but the human stuff does the eating and sleeping. And both of these are uh, finally judged problematic, especially by Cyril of Alexandria, who is the 5th century um, theological hero of Ephesus and Chalcedon, though I have to say probably one of the more unpleasant church fathers, personally speaking. But uh, alas, we will just have to set that aside for now. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. The whole controversy between Cyril and Nestorius was set off, wasn't it, by this concept that we're talking about today, Theotokos. Here's a direct quote from Cyril. Almost all our fight for the faith was connected with our declaring that the Holy Virgin is Theotokos. But if we say that the Holy Body of Christ, the Savior of us all, was from heaven and not from her, how could she be thought of as Theotokos? For whom indeed did she bear if it is not true that she bore Emmanuel after the flesh. It's very interesting, isn't it, that he characterizes the Theotokos language as the crux of the controversy. So probably what happened is that this acclamation of Mary as Theotokos was developing in piety, um, much like, you know, right from the beginning, Jesus is worshipped. And at some point they finally have to say, okay, we're worshiping Jesus. That must mean he's God or this would not be okay. (laughs) Same thing with the Holy (laughs) Spirit. So they're not worshiping Mary, but they are honoring her and acclaiming her as the bearer of God. So this has become a a kind of central motif of Christian piety, and it clearly has Christological implications. Uh, There are attempts to uh, modify the language and say, well, why don't we call her the 
anthropotokos. That means the bearer of the human, like she just bears the humanity of Jesus. Or we could say Christotokos, because then we're still talking about the same, same, you know, same Jesus, but we're just calling him Christ. We don't have to like specify is she actually bearing the God part in her womb. And I think that's where we finally get down to the issue of the the personal union, that Jesus is one one integrated whole thing, not a lobotomized thing or a two-thirds this and one-third that kind of thing. But if Jesus is Jesus, as the Christological doctrines affirm him to be, that means the whole time that he is a, a two-egg zygote or whatever, or a developing <laughs> fetus at any stage of his nine months of gestation, then he is just as much God then as he is at any later point in his childhood or adult life. And that is why the it became important to stick with Theotokos and not um, muddy the issue by saying, for instance, Christotokos. Yeah, that's very good. And, and I think that what you're saying reminds me very much of the account that Yaroslav Pelikan makes of this controversy, both in his um, his five-volume um, uh, History of Doctrine, but also in a very interesting little book he wrote on the uh, Mary through the Ages, of a volume corresponding to his book, Jesus Through the Ages. And he gives a lot of weight to the Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi argument that the the law of piety or the law of worship uh, informs the law of doctrine. Um, and I think, you know, so far as that goes, that's true. As you said, if you address Jesus as Lord, if you invoke prayers to Jesus, Maranatha, come Lord, you know, or something like that, um, or Lord Jesus, a son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, the famous uh, Jesus prayer of the Orthodox tradition, or on and on and on, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. I mean, you, you can go through all these invocations. If you're addressing prayer to the person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if it's not idolatry, something like the Theotokos must be true. Uh, and that's its Christological significance. But I would just add to that just a little bit, uh, but I, I think it's still more about how to identify Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and distinguish him from imposters and frauds. Because all these false solutions, you know, Apollinarius, the Logos replaces the human soul, Nestorius, son of Mary, son of God, are bosom buddies, but not the same thing, <laughs> you know, and you can go on down the line through the various Christological errors. They always, uh, they finally um, fail because they can't pick out in the world the one singular individual who is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that is what Christians need to do uh, in order not to be buffaloed or fooled. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, do not believe them. Uh, brothers and sisters, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they come of God. And this is the test that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Uh, not that there is any other gospel, uh, but some are perverting the gospel and, and teaching you some other gospel than the one that you received, as Paul says at the beginning of Galatians. It's a question of uh, identification. That's what's cognitively important about the doctrine. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you can always um, 
learn a lot about a man by looking at his mother. Uh, I think my own mother has <laughs> has uh, often ad- admonished me in earlier life to, uh, you know, if, if you like a man, uh, find out something about his mother before proceeding. <laughs> it actually reminds me of a, a wonderful line from The Importance of Being Earnest, which my son is starring in. And this is one of the lines he gets to say is, um, every woman turns into her mother eventually. That is her tragedy. No man turns into his mother. That is his tragedy. <laughs> so... <laughs> So maybe we can say if if Mary is the true and faithful Israelite that God has found and put favor upon, then the glory of Jesus is that he did not tragically fail to become his mother, but in fact lived up to the uh, the, the woman that his mother was. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, a, you know, we kind of bypassed the Gospel of John, and what you just said made me think of the Gospel of John for a minute, because... Uh, You know, we don't have a story of the nativity in the Gospel of John, but we do have a passage from the first chapter that is kind of a commentary on it. Uh, If, as as I think, John full well knows the synoptic traditions, uh, this is what John says about that. Uh, He's talking about the Logos, who was with God and was divine. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. There's an indication comment on the Jewishness of Jesus. But to all who received him, who believe in his name, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, namely, he has given power to become the children of God. Now listen to this. Who were born, not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. So there you have John's theological cashing in on the significance of this article of doctrine, that what's significant is that Jesus is the man who was not born from the will of man, but of the Spirit of God, and that when you believe on his name, when you identify him in this way, that gives the power for you or me or anyone to become the children of God by the same new birth that John talks about in chapter 3. You know, and just to build on that, we were talking in our recent Matthew episodes on the the subtle affinities between Matthew and John more than than other with the others. And this just strikes me, again, if you re- reverse the way you look at it, if we can become children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, that really corresponds with Matthew's Jesus' generous distribution of his father to anyone who will listen and follow him. So there, there's another deep, deep level correlation there too. But I like the idea that this is actually not, not of the flesh or of the will of man is actually John's indirect affirmation of the virgin birth in his own theological language. Yeah. All right. Well, just to wrap up then the the patristic part here, I just want to read out from the Chalcedonian Decree of 451. This is the last universally accepted um, conciliar. I mean, there are three after, three more after this one before the the Great Schism. But uh, practically speaking, um, the uh, little O Orthodox churches all agree definitely through Chalcedon. That's not really fair to the Syriac churches. I think there was a misunderstanding there. Okay, forget what I just said there. Anyway, everybody should agree with this. <laughs> the Chalcedonian decree about Christology. And the point is that Mary the Virgin Theotokos is mentioned in it. So here we go. 
Following, therefore, the Holy Fathers, we confess one and the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we all teach harmoniously that he is the same perfect Godhead, the same perfect manhood, truly God and truly man, the same of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father and Godhead, and the same consubstantial with us in manhood, humanity, like us all, like us in all things except sin, begotten before the ages of the Father and Godhead, the same in the last days for us, and for our salvation, born of Mary the Virgin Theotokos in manhood, humanity, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, unique, acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the difference of the natures being by no means taken away because of the union, but rather the distinctive character of each nature being preserved, and each combining in one person and hypostasis, not divided or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. And like in the yeah. the dead center of this, this confessional paragraph is Mary the Virgin Theotokos. Right. And so there, you know... This t requires a little bit of subtlety because the text as it stands uh, seems to affirm one and the same Son and only begotten God, Word, Logos, Lord Jesus Christ, which, of course, is one and the same is some kind of uh, identification of deity and humanity as one, right? It's some kind of union, right? Right. Um, and it also is saying that the two natures persist without confusion, without change, yet also without division and separation. So that's kind of a geometric puzzle, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> how, 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 do you, how do you put these two um, massively um, differentiated natures together into one? And I think here you have to really emphasize the solution that will come in the Fifth Ecumenical Council. That the union, and this is Cyril, and we'll talk about Cyril now a little bit more, uh, that the union is the personal act of the eternal Son of God. Uh, the eternal Son of God is the person, the persona. Now this is we don't think about a human personality or psychology because that'll just get you screwed up here. Uh, but as Robert Jensen says, a useful paraphrase is an identity, the second identity of God, the Logos, the Son, uh, who is who he is in relationship to his Father and their spirit. This identity as a person takes to himself from Mary a whole human nature and it becomes his very own. And so there is a personal union with the flesh and soul, the body and soul of, of, of uh, taken from Mary uh, to produce the creature, Jesus Christ. All right, good. Well, we should probably spend more time in future episodes uh, unpacking patristic Christology because there's lots of good stuff there. Um, but I, I think we'll leave this for now because we're getting towards the end of our time. And is that okay? Yeah, just just Cyril, just to make the point here how Cyril agrees. He says, we do not say that the flesh was changed into the nature of God, had nor that the ineffable nature of the word of God was transformed into the nature of flesh. That would be a fusion of natures. That's not what's being affirmed. What's being affirmed is a personal union. 
in which the divine hypostasis, the eternal son, in a, the fullness of time, takes to himself humanity as his very own. That's all. Yeah. I, I think then you have to really affirm that there's some kind of uh, historical temporal unfolding of action here because it's hard to imagine if it's a static thing, how it could be anything other than a tertium quid, you know, if, like you said, a fusion of two things. But if it is a, a personal act that unfolds in actions over time, I, I think that that makes better sense of it. And you can tell just the limitations of language, like they have to keep zigzagging back and forth in this Chalcedonian definition, because as soon as they say something that they have to say, but we don't mean this, and we do mean this, and don't forget this part. You know, it's something you you see better in action than you can spell out in a, a linear proposition. Right. And very simply, we, we see kind of a, a dim analogy to this in human acts of love. When we truly love someone, we make them our own. We make their sorrows and their joys our own, so that what they feel, we feel. Now, as human beings, individuated human beings, there are barriers to that. We cannot do as much as we might long to do that. We cannot fully absorb the other into ourselves, and it wouldn't be healthy for us if we could. But here you have the idea, uh, and this is, uh, again, a divine wonder, that the eternal Son of God can make his very own this particular humanity from Mary's womb all the way to the cry of dereliction on the cross and beyond. Okay, good. Well then, so turning to our last segment, here is the, the big reveal. I think we have alluded to the fact that Dad is the senior editor of a series of books called Reconstructions in Lutheran Doctrine. Is that correct? Yes, doctrinal theology. Doctrinal, the right. So, and we have what, like 25 or 30 books contracted with Whip and Stock in this series, right? Right, 30 books, yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll probably be talking more about that whole series in the future. Uh, Dad is going to do one on the resurrection. Is that right? I feel embarrassed that I don't know this more clearly. The doctrine of the resurrection, yeah. Okay, yeah. Every sentence in a row here has ended with a question mark. Okay, so, so far, so good. <laughs> but uh, I um, am the untimely born, despite being the daughter of the flesh of Paul Hinlicky. I was the last person to contract because, you know, uh, although nepotism has gotten me everywhere in life, I thought it was probably time to step aside <laughs> until one day, I think, was it a year or two ago, we were, I was visiting you in Virginia and we were riding along and you said, well, everybody has gone for the, the topics we laid out except for the book on Mary. And if no one takes it, I guess I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to do two books in the series, which dad is very comical because it's very much like how you ended up doing the Joshua commentary for the Brazo series. Nobody else wanted it. <laughs> and so when you said that, I was like, oh, well, you know, if I were to do a book on Mary, here's what I would cover blah, 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 blah. And you said, all right, Sarah, <laughs> now that you've let everyone it's else have deal. their shot, <laughs> yeah, has had their shot. You did not use your privilege to, to, to get a better doctrine. You're stuck with Mariology. Now, actually, I'm quite glad because I've been working, as I, I talked in our Evangelical Hagiography episode last year, I've been working for ages and ages on this larger project on, um, uh, yeah, Evangelical Hagiography. And of course, Mary is very important in the whole hagiographical tradition. And I have had some thoughts about Mary for a long time. And so anyway, yes, I my book is not due till due till 2026. So nobody holds your breath waiting to see it. But um, 
Anyway, as we've we've talked about it, there are definitely some. Uh, I want to affirm the the biblical and patristic and Lutheran Reformation tradition on Mary, but I also have some things I would like to add, and that is the point of the series to build forward doctrinally, um, uh, rooted in the sources and addressing new new issues as they arise. And so for me, I, I this is one of the things that uh, I would like to contribute, and that's what we'll end with here today, is, um, is I think, for me, very much out of concern and a desire to repair the harm done by uh, Lutheran as well as wider Christian anti-Judaism, I would really like to look at Mary as a mother among the mothers of Israel. And I think this will shed a lot of light on her and her significance for for Christology and but also for piety and for a better Christian Israelology, perhaps we could say it like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's uh, that's intriguing and it's picking up on some things we talked about today. Uh, so not until 2026 you're going to keep yeah. our listeners in waited in bated <laughs> breath for another three years? Well, I have some other books that I need to do first uh, anyway. But uh, that that was the latest possible date you gave your your authors as a due date. So I went for it. And like you said, I'm, I'm, I was the last one to sign on, uh, untimely born. And let's face it, Dad, nobody out there is actually holding their breath for a Lutheran doctrine of Mary. So... It's it's gonna be fine, but here. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna change we're gonna change that, aren't we? <laughs> uh, okay. okay, that will be an, an off microphone conversation that we can have anyway. <laughs> No, so, well, uh, we talked earlier quite a bit about the virgin birth, and of course, I want to deal with that, but I I am actually kind of. I am more interested in Mary as mother and fleshing out better what motherhood means through Mary. Um, and again, Mary among the mothers of Israel. So kind of my, my this is a sort of my working structure for this section right now, which is that we'll start with Mary as the birth mother of Jesus Christ through her reception of the Holy Spirit. And we'll put that in conversation with Hannah, the birth mother of Samuel. This is, of course, um, of of an obvious and common pairing because Hannah's song of praise when she is given Samuel is clearly the inspiration for Mary's Magnificat. There's a great deal of material um, overlap between the two of them. But what's very striking in the story as well is not only a miraculous birth. I mean, in Hannah's case, it's because she appears to be infertile because her her husband is able to have children with his other wife because that was a thing then. Um, and, you know, Mary's is qualitatively different because it's a born of a virgin, but both of them are miraculous births in order for a chosen one of God to come forward. Um, but in both cases, they, the, the, these mothers are also relinquishing mothers. So this is the uh, more acceptable term for mothers who place their children for adoption. And Hannah knows right from the start that uh, that that's her, you know, her deal, quote unquote, with God, which is if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And so she she gives birth to Samuel and raises him, but eventually she has to place him in the proto-temple where Eli lives, um, and Samuel grows up there. Um, Hannah is then blessed with many other children as well, but her firstborn son is relinquished to the purposes of the Lord. And clearly this is the same thing that's happening with Mary. She is given her firstborn son. She is warned by Simeon that um, 
bad things are going to happen that will pierce your heart. She proto loses him in the temple when he is 12 years old, but ultimately she does have to hand him him over to to his ministry. And, you know, if we take uh, the, the, the synoptic accounts, there is definitely some tension there in what he's doing and what his, his mother wants for him at a certain point in, in the story. So that's, that's the first pairing I have. Then I want to talk about Mary as a grieving mother of the crucified Christ um, alongside other grieving mothers of Israel, um, in particular, Rachel, who weeps over her murdered children. Um, it's talked about in Jeremiah. And then, of course, um, uh, Matthew calls on this very strongly when Herod has the little boys of Judea murdered in his attempt to wipe out this uh, claimant to his throne. Um, and also Rizpah, who we mentioned very briefly in our episode on the Saul saga, who is um, Saul's concubine, uh, mother of some of his children, who in David's last um, villainous decision to wipe out uh, Saul's um, descendants, even though he swore to Jonathan he would never do that. Um, and then the the bodies are not buried. Rizpah stands guard over their unburied bodies and um, until David finally slightly rectifies his evil by having them properly buried and reunited with Saul's remains. So grieving mothers of Israel, definitely a mm. perduring theme. And then, uh, well, I'll, I'll stop there before I get to the last point, if you have any comments you'd like to make. No, this, this is going to be fascinating, and I think it's it's exactly the kind of positive corrective uh, to a Mariological uh, traditions that have gone off the track, and this is how to get it back on track. That's all I want to say enthusiastically. Okay, great. And then the last thing I want to do is, um, and, and this is, this one is um, of great personal significance to me, as uh, listeners know by now, I am myself an adoptive mother, not the biological mother of my son. And I remember, you know, coming across the uh, afresh, the story in at the end of the Gospel of John, where, as I mentioned, Mary and the beloved disciple are given to one another. And Jesus says, behold your mother, behold your son. And we know that when the divine word speaks words, they create reality. And so he truly makes of Mary and the beloved disciple a new family in which they are mother and son to one another. And we know that the beloved disciple from that point on took Mary into his care and they were truly mother and son to one another. And so there's been so much focus on Mary, uh, and appropriately so, as the virgin mother and of the bearer of, of God, of Jesus as God, but so much less attention given to that at the, at the, at the cross itself, she actually becomes parad- paradigmatically the adoptive mother. And in the whole logic of the New Testament, um, fertility miracles end with John the Baptist, from then on, the miracle of the new family is the adoptive miracle of God adopting us as children. Paul loves this language. He talks a lot about this with both ingrafting and with, you know, we receive the spirit of adoption and we are able to call Abba Father. I think that's what John is doing here is signifying there is this new mode of family in adoption. So um, <laughs> the, a bad Christology is called adoptionism, which is, I understand that where the this language came from. It's very unfortunate because stigma against adoption still persists in, in many parts of the world uh, to this day. But the right kind of adoptionism is, first of all, um, is uh, 
is God's adoption of all of us as his children through the generous extension of his fatherhood by Jesus. But then we can see this actually rooted in his history. So, you know, Joseph is Jesus' adoptive father. That is adoptive fatherhood there. And it's through this adoptive fatherhood that Jesus falls into the lineage of Israel, which means that adoption really creates a, an, a reality that that Jesus can take his genealogy from Joseph. And, you know, I, 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 you know, again, this is pious imagination, but Mary must have learned something about adopting from her husband, Joseph, who adopted Jesus as his son before the two of them had their own biological children together. And then Mary becomes the adoptive mother of the beloved disciple and paradigmatically of the church. And so the church itself as an adoptive reality, rather than a, um, a, a, blood and earth, <laughs> to allude back to that un- unfortunate um, Nazi theology, it, it, the, the adoptive reality is much more fundamental. And so I think this is a way of holding together, again, the the Israelite rootedness of Jesus in his mother Mary his and his Jewish adopted father, Joseph, that then spreads out from the beloved disciple outward towards the whole family of the church. Well, that's just super, Sarah. And, and just again, one brief comment. The end is greater than the origin. The goal is the the point where the Spirit's purpose becomes manifest. And so to focus solely on Mary and her role in the origin of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is really in a way to truncate the doctrine. And I think you're right on target here that the goal of the doctrine is the adoption of the people of God, uh, the ingrafting of us Gentiles into the Israel of God. Uh, And that is paradigmatically the fruit of Mary's uh, uh, person and work uh, in, in Christian theology. And then it really matters that Mary does not vanish from the scene. But like I said, John has her as uh, being mutually adopted with the beloved disciple. And Luke depicts her among the disciples praying in the temple. So her story is not over once Jesus is pushed out of the womb, right? (laughs) Or even once he grows up and leaves home. But she continues to have this role. And and I think, again, um, you said the the end is greater than the origin. That I, I know you don't mean it, but it could be read supersessionistically. But I think the point is precisely because adoption is real and it creates a real family, not a fake family, not a second best family, that this is exactly how we can talk about the Gentiles becoming part of the people of God, not by replacing the original family, but by being adopted into the original family, which continues to exist. It does not cease to exist. Right, right. Very good, Sarah. I'm looking forward to it. I have to wait three years. <laughs> well, three years till it's due, and then you know it usually takes a year and a half before a submitted book actually is published. So probably twenty twenty seven or twenty twenty eight. But you, be, you better hope I live that long. <laughs> I do hope you live that long. <laughs> okay, we're going to continue this conversation off microphone next time on the show. Continuing with the Christological themes, we will be talking about Cappadocian Father Gregory of Nazianzus. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.